Well, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Exodus 16 with me. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find the page, uh, page 60, and you'll find the passage that we're looking at this morning. If you're new to the scriptures, chapter, the chapter is chapter 16. It's the big number, and the small number are the verses. And as we go through, it'll help you to be able to locate uh, the verses that we're pointing out in order to see what the text is talking about. And uh, as you turn there, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we pray now that you would feed us by faith. We pray that you would open your word to us, that you would permit me to, to preach, and that you would hold out Jesus clearly to us, that we would see his glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years back, uh, a few of us, Kyle and Jonathan and Kevin and I were on a vision trip to Scotland to see the work of 20 schemes. And while we were there, uh, one of the things we did is we went to different schemes to see different works that were going on. And the day that we were left Edinburgh and went to Glasgow, on the way, there was this beautiful, you know, scenic uh, uh, area that you would expect to see in a place like Scotland. And off in the distance is this tower And the guide that was with us said, over there in that tower is the actual sword of William Wallace, the real sword. And we all said, the real sword right there? Yeah, and we're going there for lunch after we go to Glasgow. So we couldn't wait. We thought, this is going to be cool. When we get done with that, we're stopping there, and we're going to see William Wallace's sword And so we did what we were doing in Glasgow. We made it there. We go and we get our lunch. And the lunch just took forever to get our food. And so we waited. There's a cafe there. And we're waiting the whole time. We're waiting for everybody to get their food and eat. And about an hour goes by. And everybody's finally done. And we start to get up. And our guide says, okay, we got to get back in the van and leave. We said, what do you mean? We haven't seen the sword. And he said, oh, we weren't actually going to go in and see the sword. We just were going to eat here. And the four of us were like, I'm sorry, what? You said William Wallace's sword is here and we're going there after Glasgow. And he said, yeah, but that's, that's just, that, it's not in the itinerary. Sorry, fellas, we got to go. And we could not believe it. And you can tell we're still sore about it a little bit. You know, sometimes that's what we think God is doing with us. That he's holding something out, something amazing, and he's just kind of showing it to us, but he doesn't intend to give it to us. That couldn't be further from the truth. What the scriptures tell us, what Jesus shows us, is that God intends to save us completely. What he began in us, he intends to complete. And the, the, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit to bring us to faith in Jesus and Hardness of our sins is only the beginning of what God intends to do. He intends us to get us all the way home and give us the whole thing. That's what God's doing. And that's what this passage in Exodus 16 is showing us. It's reminding us that God gets glory by saving us all the way. If you take notes, that's, that's the, the main thing that you want to you let just hit you this morning and you want to pray for God to get in your mind and your heart, that God gets glory by saving us all the way. Now, if you take notes, uh, 
I have here five, five ways that we need to think about this passage, and it's coming from the five ways that the Bible remembers this narrative. So this narrative is a very important narrative in Israel's history, and throughout the scriptures, it comes up a lot. And there are five ways that it's remembered. Let me tell you what the ways that it's remembered, and then I'll give you the five ways that we need to think about it. The, the ways that it's remembered, it's remembered as Israel's unbelief and their rebellion. That's, that's the first one. It's, it's also remembered as God's kind faithfulness, because he provides for them. But a third way that it's remembered is that this is God testing Israel to sanctify them. He's, he's doing something. The fourth way is the way we've been thinking about in the series in John. We're in John chapter 6 in, our, in that series, right? And in that series, Jesus is teaching that he is the bread from heaven, and he's pulling from this passage. And the fifth one is the passage we read earlier, and that's in 2 Corinthians 8, that it's a reason that we can be generous ourselves. So these are, these are five ways that the, the, the whole Bible remembers this, this passage. So here's the way that we need to apply this. Here's, here's how we need to think about it. First, you need to doubt your analysis and go with God's promise. Doubt your analysis and go with God's promise. This is verses 1 through 3. The second way that we need to apply this passage is that we need to learn God's ways. We need to learn God's ways. This is verses 4 through 12. The third way is that we need to rely on God to save completely. Rely on God to save completely. This is verses 13 through 15, roughly. And then the fourth way is that we need to eat God's food. Eat God's food. This is verses 31 to 36. And then if there's time, very briefly, we'll look at the fifth way. Give from God's promise. Give from God's promise. So let's look at this again. Look at verses 1 through 3 as we doubt our analysis and go with God's promise. Verse 1 says, The entire Israelite community departed from Elam and came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had left the land of Egypt. So this is a timestamp in verse 1, and it's, it's telling us something about the journey and the progress of Israel in their redemption. God has saved them from Egypt. They were slaves there. The book of Exodus begins with them in slavery, and they are multiplying, and Pharaoh is concerned, and so he begins to oppress them greater and enslave them uh, with hard work. And in the midst of that, they cry out to God to see them and to rescue them. And God does exactly that. He brings the ten plagues on them and he miraculously, dramatically rescues them, brings them out and crosses the Red Sea in another tremendous miracle. And now they're on the other side of the Red Sea and they're out in the desert area. They're free from their burden. They're free from the threat of Egypt. But now they're in the desert. And it's been about a month. Now that's a big month. Think where you were just 35 days ago. Just think what's happened in your life in the last 35 days. For, for Israel, they were slaves at the beginning of that period. 
in bondage making bricks for Egypt. Now they're free in a desert land. Now this is meant to highlight the, the, the short time period that's taken place. It hasn't been long. And they've seen huge things. But it's just enough time to deplete their resources. You remember when they left, they didn't have time to gather a lot of stuff up. And they didn't even have time to bake their bread all the way. So they, they carried with them unleavened bread. And then they took with them their flocks and herds. So they have flocks and herds and they had unleavened bread and that's about it. Well, after a month, the bread's pretty much gone. And they can't really eat the flocks. They could. But if they do, it's gone too. Right? So there's some animals with them in tow. But they don't really have much. Well, look at verse 2. The entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. Verses 2 and 3 All of this situation turns into accusations. You can imagine their their situation, right? It's dry. It's hot. They're hungry. Uh, They can't see any hope of something changing as far as they can see. They're in the desert. And so this starts to turn into complaints. Your translation might say grumble or it might say complaint. And they start accusing Moses and Aaron, but really it's an accusation against God. Because God's the one that did this whole thing. God's the one that initiated it. God's the one that went to Moses to begin with and sent him there. God's the one that did the plagues and brought them out of Egypt. He's the one that split the Red Sea. He's the one doing it. But in an attempt to sort of hide the accusation or soften it, they target Moses and Aaron, God's spokesperson. In verse 3, it tells us what their main accusation was. It says that their main accusation was that God had actually had a twisted plot to do everything he did only to starve them in the desert. You can see where their mind has gone. God, what you did, you made made the the darkness in Egypt, you made the blood, uh, the the Nile go go blood, You, you made... Uh, hail fall. You, you brought all these things about just so you could bring us out here and then make us starve to death. That's what you're really doing. Like they had uncovered God's plan. The other thing in verse 3 is that they, they say it would have been better for God to have killed them quickly like he did the Egyptians. Notice what they say. They said, it would have, if only we had died by the Lord's hand. That phrase, by the Lord's hand, is what was used of God, describing what God did to Pharaoh's army. He destroyed, he threw the chariot and its rider into the sea. It's as if they're saying, it would have been better for you to kill us just like you did the Egyptian army. And we would have died quickly there. Or it may be that because they're referring to their pots of meat, that they would have rather, they're, they're indicating that they would have rather just continued to be slaves. At least then, even though they had to work really hard, when they got home at night, there was a big pot of meat that they could eat. If we just had meat, it'd be okay to keep being slaves in Egypt. And in that way, they would die over a long, hard, laborious life. That's what's in their mind. And where's all this coming from? I mean, God just did these amazing miracles to bring them out of Egypt. 
And in just a short time, their minds are just rolling on all the ways God must be out to get them. God must hate us, right? He, he must not like us. He must want us dead. Otherwise, he wouldn't have brought us out here at all. Can you imagine? Now, this is a serious accusation. Psalm 105, verses 17 to 25. You can jot that down if you, if you make notes or if you make notes in the margin of your Bible. That's a place where this is remembered. And it's remembered there as the way Israel kept on sinning. It says there that they kept sinning and then it just lists all the things. And then, and then among those things it says they, they cried for bread. It remem- it's remembered as sin against God. Now, you, you can see why. The word for grumbled or complain appears eight times in these first 12 verses. Eight times. So remember, the writer of, of Exodus doesn't have a way to do a highlight. He doesn't circle or embolden words or put exclamation marks, right? So the way that something is emphasized is that you repeat it. And he repeats it over and over again. If you look with your eye there, you'll see verse 2, it's mentioned. Verse 7, two times. In verse 8, it's mentioned three times. Notice there it says, Moses continued, The Lord will give you meat to eat this evening and all the bread that you want in the morning, for he has heard the complaints that you are raising against him. Who are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. And then verse 9, Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. One thing you don't want to hear is for someone speaking for God to say, He's heard your complaints. Negative faith is contagious. And in this whole community of people, They're all grumbling together. Notice the way verse 2 emphasizes the fact that it's the entire Israelite community that's grumbling. And we know how that goes, right? You start to sit around in a circle. Someone brings it up and says, yeah, what are we doing out here anyway? I mean, really? Who is this Moses guy? Do Do we even know who he is? How do we know God's actually speaking to him? Right? And then someone says, yeah, yeah, I know what that's like. I'm pretty sure he's making it all up. And so on and so forth it goes. And the grumbling grows like a contagion. Meanwhile, they've got short-term memory loss. It's like they forgot one month ago what it was like to be a slave. It's very human what you see going on in their hearts. Of course they're hungry. They're in a desert. There's lots of people. There's, there's somewhere between 600,000 and a million people estimated. There's no grocery store. There, there's, there's no, nobody's got Uber Eats or anything like that. And there's, there's no farms. There's like, there's, like, there's like nowhere to go buy food, right? And so they're looking around and they're saying, we're surely going to die. And so we, we do understand the way that they feel. But in the end, where all this is coming from is that they didn't yet know or trust the Lord. God had saved them, but they didn't really know him. Who is, who is Yahweh? Who is, who is this God that rescues us and brings us to the desert? And when we grumble about our circumstances, we also show 
that we trust our own analysis and we don't really know him, or at least we doubt him. But see, their analysis of their circumstances did not include everything God had said or done so far. They couldn't imagine that God had some, might have something better in store for them here. So let me just say something here to young Christians. If you're someone who's been a Christian for five years or less, or maybe even just a year or two, the experience of things leveling off from the initial, the initial excitement that you experience will happen. When we first become believers, when the Lord gives us new birth, you, you get very excited and it's as if nothing can, can stop you. And when you hear older Christians complaining all the time, you're like, what is wrong with these people? Are, are they Christians actually? Because <laughs> all that you've experienced is just the joy of the Lord. And, and you, you can't imagine there's anything beyond just being saved and your sins forgiven. And the Lord answers your prayers and you see it happening and you see your, a dramatic change in your life in different ways. But after a little bit, all that sort of levels off. And now you have to start just walking with the Lord over a long period of time. That's the real Christian life. Now, don't learn from those older Christians who are grumbling and complaining. I'm not saying that. Uh, they need to remember what it was like to be saved. <laughs> but understand that that leveling off will happen, and that's normal. That, that's the way it is. Don't let it confuse you. God will lead you toward a settling in to the life of a Christian, which looks more like a long journey more than a short ride. So things will get harder. You'll have to work to read the Bible. You'll have to work to pray. You'll have to decide, I'm going to get myself to church. You're going to have to keep pressing to get around other Christians and be in the community of the saints. Because things are going to happen, you're not going to want to be there. But that's part of what God is wanting to do. He's wanting to sanctify you and grow you up so that your faith is a mature faith that presses forward with his promises. So you, you, have, to, you have to grab a hold of the things he said and you have to act on those things rather than everything going well. That's the Christian life. There was another way that Israel could have gone about getting food here. Do you know what it was? Their approach was, I'm hungry, I'm pretty sure God's trying to kill us. Moses, Aaron, we're mad. But there's another way to deal with this. Anybody? They could have prayed. Right? It's like it never dawned on anybody, hey, we could ask Moses to ask the Lord if he would feed us. He, he just split the Red Sea, Right? He, he just made it where when they were leaving, they went and knocked on the door of all the Egyptians and the Egyptians handed their gold to them. I mean, I mean he's a miracle working God. He, 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 he can feed them. And surely, right, he, he must intend to do that. They could have just prayed. Christian, we can pray instead of complain. We too can pray and ask the Lord to provide and give us everything we need rather than grumble about his intentions and accuse God of just wanting to hurt us. People everywhere make the mistake of reading God's character by their own interpretation of their personal experience. 
But that narrative is shaped by expectations we've often not established sufficient grounds for having to begin with. Some people hold their expectations against God saying, well, the world should be a certain way. Or I should have a particular life. Or, or, or whatever it is. But, but where did those expectations come from originally? Well, what's the basis of accusing God of being evil or shortchanging you based on your expectations? You know, if we're honest, if we evaluated our expectations, we're pulling them from somewhere else. We didn't get them from the Lord. Christian, the fight for your faith is always a battle to let your mind be shaped by God's word over your own thoughts. You have to battle your thoughts and what you read in your circumstances with what God has said and what he's doing. That's how you fight that fight. Have you ever had the experience of coming home from a trip to a busted refrigerator? What's your first thought? The money. (laughs) Yeah, if you're thinking about the food, you're thinking, think of all that money we wasted. Especially in 2022. And you think, man, we're going to have to use our savings for this. Which is what savings are for, of course. And then you think, man, just when we were getting ahead, this happens and we got to use our extra money. Not stopping to think, hey, look at that. God has already provided the money for the busted refrigerator. Or your dishwasher goes out and you think, great, my machine that washes my dishes for me broke. (laughs) So now I have to use my savings and go buy another one. And we start to just crumble. Lord, I can't get ahead. You know, I had big plans. (laughs) I was going to do stuff, you know. And we just like fail to see like, like the Lord is, is he's just provided. He's, he's already there. He's already giving. He's already working on our behalf. The antidote to all this is for us to trust the Lord based on his past redemption and his promise of continued salvation and to cultivate thankfulness which flows from humility. So we have to think about what he's done in saving us and meditate on that. And when your mind starts to go to all these other things, you have to come back here and just camp out on what the Lord has done. And then from that, cultivate thankfulness. Just start praising the Lord. I've shared this before, and I'll just keep saying it because I just think it's so helpful. Just, you know, I find in my own, in my own prayer life, when I, when I start to, you know, when I have those moments and, I, and I'm like, oh, and I just want to complain to the Lord, which... It's okay to complain to the Lord in the sense of taking your burden to him, right? But I found that when I, when I just go do that, I just like dump, dump out on the Lord and I'm, I'm still like grumbling in my heart. But what I found that if I, if I first pause and just start thanking God for, for the benefits in my life and just, just start praising him, whatever I can think of. Lord, praise you that I have a job. Thank you, Lord, that this room is conditioned with air so that I'm warm right now and not cold. God, praise you that my family is, I have a family, and that I have a wife and that loves me, and, and that I think loves me, and then, uh, and, I have, and I have children, and they're all here, and everybody's healthy, and you start to just meditate on all the things that God has given you, and sometimes I forget the thing I was about to complain to the Lord about, so I commend that to you. When your focus is on you, and your plans, you'll usually fail to see God's true character when your plans are disrupted. 
Okay, shorter. All these other ones are shorter than that one. We have to learn God's ways. We have to learn God's ways. Look at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are, are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, This evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the Lord's glory because he has heard your complaints about him. For who are we that you complain about us? We know something they didn't know at that time. And that is that God was testing them. In verse 4, he says very plainly towards the end, This way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. And this is coming right after chapter 15. Just look with your eyes there. Chapter 15, verse 26. It, just in the episode right before this, it says, He said, if you will carefully obey the Lord your God, do what is right in his sight, pay attention to his commands and keep all his statutes. I will not inflict any of the illnesses on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Sorry, it's, it's the end of verse 25. And he tested them there. So he had just tested them previously, and now he's going to test them Again, So that's important for us to know. And this is written for our instruction, right? So the Lord is testing Israel deliberately. Israel had to learn to trust him. You see, they didn't, they didn't understand who Yahweh was. They didn't really know the Lord. So the Lord is going to introduce himself over a period of time through various circumstances. He's going to help them see who he is. So this is a test that they would need to learn for when they got into the promised land. Look at the goal of this test. Verse 6. This evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then look down at verse 12. I have heard the complaints of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat and in the morning you will eat bread until you are full. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. They were to learn who the Lord is through this. It was Israel's turn to learn that Yahweh is the Lord. You remember what the theme was with, with Pharaoh, right? He sends Moses. He says, go to Pharaoh and tell him, I want my children. I want my son, Israel. You, you, set, you set Israel free. And he goes, and what does Pharaoh say? He says, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? And so the rest of the plagues are showing Pharaoh, this is who Yahweh is. Well, now it's Israel's turn. It's Israel's turn to learn who is Yahweh. But what they're going to learn is that Yahweh is their, is their father. Yahweh is the God who saves them. Yahweh is the God who protects them and cares for them and provides for all of their needs. Yahweh is the one they are to obey. This is the process of sanctification. This is, this is growing up in the faith. Deuteronomy 8 remembers this. And let, let's just listen to how it's remembered there. This is at the end of Moses' life, just before he is departing, and they're going to enter the promised land 40 years later. He, said, <clears throat> he says there, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. 
He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you, so that in the end it might go well with you. The intention of the test was so that it would go well with them in the end. That's how the tests go that the Lord brings into our life. When he's testing you or me, he's, he's doing something. He's, he's, he's growing us. He's provoking things in our lives that we need because on the other side of the test is maturity and growth. And it's something we, we need and it's going to be good for us. And it only comes through testing. The Lord's tests are not, you know, like a, like a, 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 quiz, a pop quiz on a Friday afternoon at school just to see what you know. The Lord's tests are more like training. It, it shows what you know. It, sh- it, it does. But it also shows what we need to know. And through it, we grow. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes we, we do well. But through all of the Lord's tests, he matures us. And that's what he was doing here. Doug Stewart is an Old Testament commentator, and he, he noted that the test itself required faith for an agricultural people. Think about this. These are, these are, these are um, people who graze herds, and they, they farm, right? So that involves planning and forethought. So this test was going to challenge them in, in, in not gathering as much as possible, and, and the normal effort reward that was involved in producing food. They, they weren't going to plant their crops and then know under these circumstances we're going to have food. And then when they went out, they weren't to gather too much. They were only to gather two omers a day. Just enough for that one day's portion. We'll read that part again here in just a minute. But they were going to be challenged to think about God's provision in a way that had never before been part of their planning pattern. So this is classic Yahweh. God presses his finger on that spot where we rely on ourselves to teach us to rely on him. And in the process, it's difficult, but the end is good. Now, now just get this into your mind. You will be tested as well. If you're in the Lord, if you belong to Christ, don't think that you are not going to be tested you will be tested. I wonder if you've thought about that. Have you considered the fact that you might be in a test right now? I don't know what's going on in your life specifically, uh, everybody, but, but it's possible that the Lord has you in one of those exact moments right now. How are you handling that? How are you holding up under that test? What are you doing with your circumstances? Are you having regular relationship difficulty? How about with your spouse, a roommate, friends, a boss, a teenager? Perhaps the Lord is testing you. Now, in our normal thinking, it's certainly not me who's the problem. (laughs) It's always the other person, right? The Lord's testing them. But it might just be that the Lord's using that quality that's causing you so much pain to test you. He has something for you to learn. He wants to say something to you. Reasonable faith, in this case, should have looked on what God did and conclude what he will do. 
It's easy for us to say this. We're not in the desert. We're in a comfortable room with uh, very comfortable pews. Uh, and and we're, not, we're not in the position that they were in. It's easy for us to say that from here. Armchair quarterback on Monday afternoon and say all the plays that should have been called and should have been done. But if you're thinking biblically, I mean, the, the reality is, is they had a cloud by day to visibly see in front of them that represented the presence of God. At night, they had a pillar of fire by night that also represented the continued presence of God. So that the presence of God was with them day and night. They had the word of the Lord coming. They had seen miracles. They, they had just had a miracle with some water provided just before. They should have reasoned through and said, there's no way. Somebody in the community should have said, guys, there's no way God brought us here to kill us. Come on. Does that match anything he's done so far? But no one apparently did. The Lord, though, had actually led them into this situation. So surely he had a plan. So if you are in the midst of a test, surely the Lord has a plan in your life, too. Why, why wouldn't he? Does it match the Lord to say that he didn't have a plan or doesn't have a plan? Of course he does. Of course he does. So you and I must learn that Yahweh is the Lord. You and I must learn that Jesus is the Lord. He always has a plan to provide. I may have shared this with some of you before, but when I was in seminary, I, I, went, I didn't go to the seminary in our denomination, so my seminary was double the cost. And uh, I was concerned about that, and I didn't want to go into debt for that. And so I had saved enough money for one semester, and then I had, my plan was to loan the second semester. And then my other plan was just to pray. And so... I was going to pray through the first year, and if I got to the end of the year and there was no more money, I would take that from the Lord and say, well, I, I need to slow down and just take one class at a time for as long as it takes, and I'll just pay it off as I go, and I'll, I'll work more so that I have the money to pay for that. That was my plan. And around December, I'd been praying. You know, it was time to sign all those loans for the spring semester, and I w- I'd been praying the Lord provide nothing, nothing, nothing. And I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And my neighbors, it was the only time this happened, but my neighbors invited me over for dinner and I went next door to, to dinner that night and when we were sitting there, they said, hey, aren't you from Chattanooga? I said, yeah, that's where I grew up. They said, did you see the flyer this week? I said, no, what, what is it? They said, well, in it, it was really weird. It just says, if you're from Chattanooga, Tennessee and you need money from, for seminary, go to this website and apply for this scholarship. And I thought, that's pretty unusual. Somebody once asked me, was the website uh, heaven.com or something like that? So after dinner, I ran up to the top of the hill and I I fished out somebody's flyer and I looked at it. Sure enough, there there it is. And so I applied. It was a scholarship I'd never heard of. And I applied. It was some some woman that died and left money behind. And it was was dedicated for uh, giving to seminary for people from that area who were going to go into some kind of teaching ministry in the church. And so this woman's legacy was there, and uh, I applied, and, the, and the, through that, it was a needs-based scholarship, and they paid for all the rest of my seminary. The Lord didn't give me that before I went to seminary. He didn't give it to me, you know, in September and October and November. He waited until when I really needed it, and he made me pray. But he provided. God always has a plan. The third way is that we have to rely on God to save completely. We have to rely on him to save completely. 
Look at verse 13. So at evening, quail came and covered the camp. In the morning, there was a layer of dew all around the camp. And when the layer of dew evaporated, there were fine flakes on the desert surface, as fine as frost on the ground. And when the Israelites saw it, they asked one another, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. And Moses told them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. Little trivia that you can log away for Bible trivia night. Manna, the word means what is it? So the name of it is what is it? Because they, they didn't know. It, it, they'd never seen it before. This is, this is bread from heaven. Unlike anything else they had seen. Here's what we forget. We forget that God doesn't intend to save us halfway. What he started, he will finish. That means that what we need to get to the promised land, we will have. God has pledged himself to us in Christ. He's put his glory on the line. And he's not going to give up his glory. He just won't. (laughs) He initiated the whole thing. He's going to see it through. He's going to see you through. He's going to carry us all the way to the end. And he's going to give everything we need along the way. That's what he does. He doesn't just get glory in initial salvation. He gets glory in the completion of the whole thing. What did Paul write in Romans 8, 32? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? How will he not, he says? It's an important part of salvation. The wilderness journey on the way to the promised land. That's where we are. We're in the in-between. And so we're in a, a metaphorical desert. We're in a world that doesn't want to follow the Lord, that challenges our faith on every occasion. And as far as we can see, out across the the plain, things aren't going to change. But God has a plan. He always has a plan. And he is capable of feeding us with bread from heaven. And so we should just ask. And we should trust him. And we should recognize that he's always faithful. He is faithful. He will save completely. God is not absent in all of this. They had the glory cloud showing his presence. They had Moses, and, they, and now they, had, they were going to have manna every day when they woke up. Look at this. You, 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 you no doubt probably remember this, but just look at verse 35 towards the end of the chapter. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they reached the border of the land of Canaan. They ate it all the way until they got in. And in Joshua, I believe it's chapter 5, Joshua chapter 5, they go in, and that day they ate some fruit from the tree, and it says the manna stopped that day. Because he, he literally, his plan, God's plan all along was to feed them with manna from heaven all the way through the wilderness until they got into the promised land. And that's what he did. What about us? Well, we have the Bible. We have the written word of God with his promises and the record of all of his mighty deeds like this one. You and I have Exodus 16 that we can look at and we can contemplate and we can see how he provided for his people in the past and you can let that speak to you. We have that. 
We have the church with saints to spur us on. We have older saints and younger saints. We have the young ones that have just been saved with the, with the energy and the faith and the hope to keep going. But we have the older saints who can balance us out and say, you gotta, you got to make it on the long haul, right? We have one another, but we also have the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit of God. The, the, the cloud presence of the Lord in the desert is a representation of his presence with his people. But for the saints in Christ, we actually have the Spirit in each one of us and then in us corporately. We have God with us just as they had, no less so. We have God no less than they had in the wilderness by the Spirit. God didn't give stingily either, but he gave super abundantly. This is amazing when you, when you consider what this miracle is. They would wake up in the morning and underneath the dew is heavenly bread. And all they had to eat, they got enough for the day and that, that sustained them every day. Their full diet, that's all they needed. They had all the nutrients they needed in this, in this, this manner. It was miracle food. It was heavenly food. God gave it every day for 40 years. God will give us everything we need. And on top of all that, in the middle of this, he he gives them the Sabbath on top of it. Look at verse 22. Verse 22, it says, On the sixth day they they gathered twice as much, four quarts apiece, and all the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He told them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil and set aside everything left over to be kept until morning. So they set it aside until morning as Moses had commanded and it didn't stink or have maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you won't find any in the field. For six days you will gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Yet, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they did not find any. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and instructions? Understand that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he will give you two days worth of bread. Each of you stay where you are. No one is to leave his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. God gave them... A day in the midst of all of this, even in the wilderness, where they didn't go collect the heavenly bread. So what this means is he gave them a day of rest from their labor, which really wasn't much labor, but to go out and get their, get their, get their food. And this is all the more astounding when you, when you think about where they've come from, right? In, in verse 4, do you see that phrase there in, in verse 4? It says, where it says the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. That, that phrase, enough for that day. That's the same phrase that you find in chapter 5, verses 13 and 19. So you can, you can jot that down if you want. Make note of that. In chapter 5, verse 13 and 19, that exact same phrase is what's used to refer to their daily quota of the bricks that they had to make. So God has taken them from a daily task of having to wake up under the oppression of Egypt and go out every day and make a certain quota of bricks for Egypt. 
And in place of that, he's brought them into the wilderness where what they're going to do is every day, they're going to get a daily quota of bread for themselves. He's taken them from working for somebody else to just gathering food that they didn't even work for. And even there, he gives them a day off. The Lord's just raining down blessings on his people. He wants them in every way to know I'm the Lord who provides. And you can miss a day of work and still have everything you need. You you cannot have to labor like you're a slave. And you can have everything you need as if you did work every day. Isn't that amazing? Now, to be clear, the law of the Sabbath was the Mosaic Covenant. And that has ended. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant. There's no law of the Sabbath anymore. The Sabbath is Saturday anyway. But that passed when Jesus was raised from the dead. And the church began to gather on Sunday mornings. That's why we're here. That's why we didn't gather yesterday. And so there's no law to to honor the Sabbath in that way. But the principle of the Sabbath does remain. Uh, The phrase that people uh, have sometimes used is the positive priorities of the Sabbath. And what are those? Well, the positive priorities of the Sabbath are rest, uh, 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 letting God provide, uh, worshiping, gathering with his saints, and so forth. So there's something to be said here of the slavery that demands daily tasks versus the rest that trusts in God. And some of us who tend to be workaholics need to take time off. Uh, You need to be a hard worker, and that's good. But it's also possible to work in a way that says, I don't trust the Lord to give me daily bread. Of course, to those who are ready to rest, it's worth seeing how the people had to get up every day and gather the manna before the sun melted it. If you you like to sleep in and you didn't get up, you missed out. (laughs) You you had to get up and go get it. God intends for us to work and produce, but he, he just as much also intends for us to rest from that work. So practically, it means that you should use your vacation time and your days off each week. If you're a manager or a business owner, you should take care of your people by giving them time off. Now, spiritually, it means you should prioritize the Lord's day as part of your regular rest from work. While we aren't under that Mosaic law, this passage is teaching us what it looks like to have God as our Father. So I would just ask you, does your work and your rest look like God is your Father? Is He your Father? If, if somebody just watched the way you work or don't work, what would that say about God? The point is that God showed he gets glory by saving completely. And he will save us all the way home. And this episode in Israel's history is a miraculous event to teach what God does for all his people all the way to the house. Well, we, we can't conclude without realizing that we need to eat God's food. And God's food is, is Jesus. God's food is Jesus. That's what, that's what John chapter 6 is telling us. And this is, this is a really important narrative in Israel's history. And it, it shows up in the way that Jesus does the miracle of feeding the 5,000. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but the, the miracle of feeding the 5,000 is the only miracle in the New Testament, or in the, in the four Gospels, besides the resurrection that's in all four Gospels. It's the only one. So it tells you there's something significant there. And this passage 
is, is, is mentioned all through the Old Testament. So, so the way God provides for Israel is meant to drive home the way he takes care of us. Look at verse 31. The house of Israel named the substance manna. It resembled coriander seed as white, was white and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Two quarts of it are to be preserved throughout your generation so that they may see the bread I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses told Aaron, take a container and put two quarts of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be preserved throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron placed it before the testimony to be preserved. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they reached the border of the land of Canaan. When Jesus says that he's the bread of life, when he says that he's the bread that came down from heaven, he wants you and, you and I to think about this. They literally would have starved to death and died if they didn't have this bread every day. But God gave them bread that came down from heaven that sustained their bodies in complete health all the way into the promised land for 40 years. If they didn't have it, they would have perished. But because they had it, they lived. That's what Jesus is for us. Jesus is the bread that comes down from heaven. And everyone who has him will live. We are sustained by faith in trusting in him. And not only are our sins forgiven for everyone who does that because he died on the cross to pay for our sins, but, but we, we get his spirit And he sustains us by faith all the way to the promised land when Jesus will be there face to face with us in person. If you have Jesus, you have everything you need. Everything you need. So church, we we should trust the Lord. We should remember that God gets glory by saving us completely. Let that guard your mind and heart in Christ today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great truth and this wonderful reality of Jesus, who is the bread from heaven. We pray that we would feed on him. In Jesus' name, amen.